So like uh, most of us, I suppose, the last few weeks have been thinking quite a bit about celebration, uh, especially communal celebrations, celebrations that come together, whether they're with our blood family or our spiritual community or even national celebrations. been so sort of enamored by this whole thing about celebrations. And let me be honest with you, the truth is, I don't do celebration very well. I don't know if it's because I'm British and it rains all the time, so it's just kind of a a dour bunch, or it's because I'm sort of task-oriented, or I think a lot of it is because I'm constantly doing a sort of cost-benefit analysis, and because the truth is celebrations, as you know, they take work, don't they? They take effort, they take energy, you've got to set them up, you've got to prepare for them, and then of course, you've got to clean up. And I think, I think that, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it gets to me. I do this cost management. And to be honest with you, I think of all of the things that God leads us in and teaches us and gives us, I think it's this sense of celebration that I'm most disobedient in. I really do need a heart change when it comes to absolutely and fully engaging in a good time, in a celebration, and, and you'll cast aside for a moment or two at least the cost-benefit analysis and the energy and all of those things, and well, if we do this and this, and just begin to dive into celebration. I think it's so important that celebrations are absolutely critical. As a matter of fact, I would say it's probably, it's probably essential for our own health and life as individuals and as community. Celebration is just simply very important. And we see the importance of celebration uh, all the time. I mean, if you read any kind of Christian writers, uh, you'll, you'll see that there's all kinds of, of things. You know, um, it's important because it counteracts, I think, what, what tends to be many of our natural inclination. The truth is, I was listening to one person, I think, I think they said a, a true thing. They said, you know, it's much, much easier for us to sort of uh, pay attention to and focus on and, and, and get a hold of and talk about kind of the negative things in the world. I mean, we know that from the news, right? I mean, what sells? They say negative things, tragedies, disasters, bad stuff, uh, catastrophes, impending catastrophes. They capture the news and, and they said it's a sign of our broken world and our broken selves. It's a sign of the brokenness within us that we just sort of, we notice that and it's easy for us to dwell within that. And so what we have to do, we have to combat the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of of sin and all of these things. Uh, Part of the antidote to that, to make us healthy, is to involve ourselves in celebrating the good gifts that God gives us. I mean, James tells us we're going to spend uh, the the spring talking through the, the gospel, the book, gospel. The good news is good news, but the book of James. And in James it tells us, first chapter. Listen, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. He he lavishes his grace upon us. And so we've got to focus in on the celebration of these things to combat the negativity that so often invades our life. Christian authors know this. You know, Richard Foster, who's sort of a, he's famous for his book, A Celebration of of Discipline. Disciplines, Christian disciplines are things like, you know, praying and reading your Bible and fasting and uh, solitude and all of these things. Now look at what Richard Foster says about celebration in this great classic book. He says, look, celebration is central 
to all the spiritual disciplines, okay? So all of these things, your daily devotions, your giving, your solitude, your fellowship, all of these things, celebration needs to be central to those disciplines. Without a joyful spirit of festivity, the disciplines become dull, death-breeding tools in the hands of modern Pharisees. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, how often have we sort of been felt overburdened and guilt-ridden because some preacher, you know, laid it on as about our devotional life just doesn't measure up. And so without a sense of festivity, without a sense of, sense of, of celebration, Foster says, look, they just, they just become like dust in our mouths. And instead of being life-giving means of grace that God intends them to be, they become a stick with which we get beaten. He goes on and he says this, look at this one. A little later on in the book, in the chapter, it's an occupational hazard of devout folk to become stuffy bores. <laughs> it's celebration that stops us becoming that. I remember a few years ago now, I was driving along the road in a truck with Henry Ham, and I said, Henry, I don't know how I became so boring. <laughs> and Henry says, well, Alan, don't you think it's, it's like it's natural for life? Tragedy happens, responsibility begins to weigh us down, and we just, we just get boring. It might be true, but it's not what God wants for your life, and it's not what God wants for my life, and it's not what God wants for our life. He doesn't want us to become a bunch of stuffy bores. Well, you know, Richard Foster, he's quite well known, but the master of it all, the master of spiritual formation in these modern days is Dallas Willard. You've heard of Dallas Willard? Please, please, please have heard of Dallas Willard. He says this. But the world, this world is radically unsuited to the heart of the human person. And the suffering and terror of life will not be removed no matter how spiritual we become. Think about that for a minute. Just go back a second. Back up. What Willis is saying is that, listen, God never intended. He never created us. He never made you. He didn't put his spirit in you and your spirit in you and your heart in you to live in this world that is just filled with tragedy. That's, that's not our home. This is not our home. This is not how things are supposed to be. We're not created to be living in this mess that sin has caused. That's what Genesis, the first part of Genesis is all about. God didn't create us for this. But the thing is this, he's saying that, look, the truth is that no matter how spiritual you become, no matter how often you pray, no matter how disciplined you are in this spiritual disciplines, tragedy is still going to invade your life. And it's certainly going to invade your life if you care about other people. And it's certainly going to invade your life the longer that you live. And he's been saying this, he said, look, God didn't create us to live as this. It's not how it's supposed to be. Okay, next slide. It is because of this because we're not created to exist in the reality that we're confronted with every day. It's because of this that a healthy faith before God cannot be built and maintained without heartfelt celebration of his greatness and goodness to us in the midst of our suffering and our terror. And he points to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says this, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. It is the act and discipline of faith to seize the season and embrace it for what it is, including the season of enjoyment. Do you see what he's saying? 
He's saying the times to, to weep and times to be sorrow and to mourn, they're going to come into your life because we live in this, in this world that's broken and we have these lives that are broken. But the only way to combat that is to get us through it is, is, is don't lose the sense of celebration. Don't lose the time where we stop and we thank God for the good things that he lavishes upon us. You know, this is, we watched uh, The Fiddler on the Roof. It was on TV and we haven't watched it for years. I'd forgotten what a sad story that is. <laughs> a great warning to be careful when you've got a pile of daughters. <laughs> Just stop getting married and moving away and there's this bum that's married. But, but in my memory of The Fiddler on the Roof is it's this joy. We like that, right? Why is that? Because you know, it portrays this thing that this, the Jewish nation who have had so much a tragedy and horrific things uh, poured upon them uh, maintain this sense of joy somehow because they understand this. They understand this. We'll see why in a minute. And of course, just one last uh, author, uh, you know, Tony Campolo, his most uh, famous book is The Kingdom of God is a Party, which is one of the times that really helped me clue into it. Uh, Jones, you're really kind of missing it here. And so these authors, they write these things because it's the reality that if we don't celebrate, we wither inside. Our soul and our heart and our life shriveled up. And the antidote to that is celebration. God knows this because God created them. We see that God knows this in so many ways. Now, the first way, of course, is the feasts. You can't go through the Jewish year without running into some kind of a national party. And there, you know, all kinds of feasts that they have. So, so seven great feasts that, that are there. Um, you can check out Leviticus chapter 23. It, it talks about a bunch of those feasts and you can look at them. We, we kind of know the, the pilgrim feasts. A little bit. The feasts that kind of run together. The, the big one that we know, of course, is the feast of, of Passover and unleavened bread. We kind of run them together, but really they were two different separate feasts. And this, this whole great feast, this great celebration that God takes the sins of the nation and rolls them forward. Great stuff. The Feast of Weeks or, or Pentecost, which took 50 days after, which celebrated the giving of the law and the giving of the harvest and the provision of God. And then, and then the great fun one, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles in Leviticus 23, there was seven days where people come to Jerusalem and they, they'd camp out as a reminder of the, the traveling in the wilderness and God's provision for them. And it was this great a celebration and party. These, these were feasts commanded by God. I said, you're all going to get together and you're going to get together in this big place and you're going to have these great big times of parties and celebrations and feastings and family and friends and, and together as a nation, all of these things. They're commanded by God because God knows that we need celebrations. It's the sustenance of our life and we need to dive into them. We just need them. Lucy Finborgo says this about who's a spiritual director. There's, Laurel does this spiritual direction stuff. You go and it's kind of like counseling except for spiritual. It's kind of a, not, it's very different than counseling, but it's a sense of, of this is what's going on and how do we hear God in this and how, do we, how is God shaping us and this sort of thing. And so and she, she writes this, this, uh, this Lacey Borgo writes this. Celebrations are wonderful bonding experiences. Look at this. Tragedy draws us together. But celebration binds us. There's nothing like a good party to make people one. 
why are there so many Jewish celebrations? Why did God come out in so many feasts? God's people needed to bond together. Their survival depended on their oneness before God, and so they partied. It's just so true. I mean, it's true of our lives as well, isn't it? I mean, think of the festivals that Roe used to, and Barry used to provide. We all get together and have these festivals. And, and think currently of the soup and the Sabbath that Kathleen and Janaea coordinating. It's easy for us to skip those things and to think, well, you know, that's not that important. No, they are critically important that we participate in them and enjoy them because it's celebration and just being together and eating together and laughing together and telling stories together of the Lord and of life and all these things. They are critical to our spiritual, emotional, health as individuals and as a church. And don't even get me started on how communion is supposed to be a celebration, a communal meal. I just better leave it alone. God puts these things in as celebrations to bind us together that we must not skip. That's why God says they are feasts. That's why Jesus says let's have communion every week. That's why we delight in enjoying and being together in, 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 as families and in small groups and, and together as a whole church and all of these things. God put these feasts in throughout the Jewish calendar to keep reminding them of his goodness and as an antidote to the tragedies that they were experiencing. And nothing that shows that God knows all about our need for it. You know how he describes his kingdom? He describes his kingdom as a great big wedding feast. You can read it there in Matthew chapter 22. And it's, I kinda, you kind of get caught up there because this guy's getting tossed out of the pot and all these different things. But, but, but really that's not the emphasis of it. The emphasis is this whole thing that, that God says, listen, you know what my kingdom like? It's like being invited to this great, marvelous, wonderful Mediterranean banquet. And he says, listen, go out into the place and tell my servants, send more servants out. And he said, why? And tell those who've been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Matt Chandler reminded me, I hadn't really thought this through. He said, do you understand that in, in Jesus' day, this whole thing about eating all this meat, no, 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 man. You're going to eat some lentils for your protein. Not very often you get this meat stuff. That's for the rich folks. That's for the, that's for the people who are privileged. That's for those other people who live on the other side. And so it's this amazing thing. It's a mind-blowing thing for them to be invited. Where, Look, no, God says, all the oxen, they've been slapping the fattened calf, all that stuff. You just come and have this amazing, marvelous, wonderful, days-long feast. And later on, he says to the servants, listen, you go out and you invite everybody that will come. Because when I'm going to have a kingdom, it's got to be a big party. It's got to be a big, fantastic, marvelous, wonderful celebration full of, of dancing and singing and wine and fruitfulness and all of the good things that the Mediterranean party puts together. God says, this is what the kingdom is. If you want to know, that's why Campola's book, The Kingdom of God is a Party. If you just imagine the best, most fun, exciting, laughter-filled, wonderful food, marvelous celebration wedding that you've ever been to. It's 10 times that. And God says, this is what the kingdom is to be. A great, big party. And then he goes on. And we get to the end of the book. And we come to Revelation chapter 19 and this marvelous uh, image of the great worship service in the heavenlies. 
And God says, this is the wedding feast of the Lamb. No wonder Dallas Willard describes celebration as this. One of the most important disciplines and the completion of worship. The completion of worship is celebration. I want you to think about that. I mean, of all of the things that we think about as worship, well, it's saying, listen, you need to just celebrate. Above everything else, it should be the sense of celebration of the governor, the goodness and the marvelous grace and wonderful salvation and future of the goodness of our God. Celebration is the completion, the fulfillment, the full expression of worship. Well, if it's that important, then surely God will give us some hints as to how we're to celebrate. Well, there's all kinds of places I suppose we could look, but, and I looked at a bunch of them, but to me, uh, there's a couple of things that really stood out. The first one, if you go to Deuteronomy, this, Dallas Willard was big on this one, so I, I suppose that's why it sinks in so much. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 27. Let's see what it says. Think about this from the, the lens of celebration. All right. Be sure to set aside a tenth. Okay, 10%. This is the tithe, right? Be sure to set aside 10% of everything that your fields produce each year. Why? Why am I going to do this 10%? You're going to eat the 10% of your grain, your new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks were in the presence of the Lord, your God at the place he will choose as the dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God ways. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, you take your 10% of your gross national product, you take percent of your stuff, and you have a great big party with it. You feast together with it before the Lord. Okay, before the Lord. But if that place is too distant, in other words, you're going to pack these sacks of grain. If your place is too distant, because you're coming way up north all the way to Jerusalem, then... And you've been blessed by the Lord your God and you can't carry your tithe because he's blessed you too much because the place where the Lord chooses will put his name is so far away, so Jerusalem's far away. Then exchange your tithe, exchange that grain and your cattle, all those things for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place of the Lord that God will choose. That's going to be the temple, okay? Use the silver to buy whatever you like. You're going to have a party. You're going to have a feast. You're going to have a celebration. So take that 10% and do what with it? Well, you buy cattle or sheep or wine or fermented drink or actually the word is strong drink or anything else that you wish that will make that party good. Then you and your household shall eat it there in the presence of the Lord your God and you will rejoice. You will rejoice. And don't neglect the Levites because they didn't have places to farm, living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. All right, so what are some of the clues about celebration and partying that God gives us? Well, first of all, is it takes planning and it takes resources. It takes work. That's my whole thing, right? You know, cost-benefit analysis. He said, look, you need to understand something, Alan. To have a good party, it's going to take some planning. It's going to take some resources. It's going to take some work before and after. But here's the thing. It is worth it. It is necessary. It is essential. It is 
a command of the Lord your God. Secondly, to recognize the good things that come from the Lord and to give thanks for them. To give thanks for them and to celebrate it. Because I know and you know that, that tough things crowd in around us. But the antidote is to take these times of feasting and celebration and say, yeah, 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 we've got all these troubles and trials and there's world problems and, and all of these things. But we're going to take some time to remember the goodness of God and to celebrate that. Because if I don't celebrate that, if I don't get into it, if I don't, you know, expend energy and, and bring those that I love around me and those things and laugh and dance and sing and feast, then it just gets too overwhelming. And I've got to take the antidote. I've got to take that. So even though it takes work and resources to give thanks to God for these things, make it work. Third is understand that God our Father loves it when his kids party. He does. That's why he gives them this command. I want you to have all these feasts. Seven of them in the Jewish calendar year. I want you to go and I want you to have these great big parties. I love it. It gives me joy. We know that Jesus did it. Why? How do we know that? Because what was Jesus accused of doing? He's doing a comparative study between himself and John the Baptist. He said, listen, I know what you're saying about me. You're saying about me that I'm a party animal. That was their criticism. You're hanging out with a bunch of party animals and you're a party animal yourself. You've got all this time doing this. What do you think you're doing? You're supposed to be a spiritual leader. I know, but I don't want to be a religious bore, says Jesus back. What's his first miracle? A wedding feast where they were running out of wine and people were going to be embarrassed and the time wasn't going to be as good. And so, and so Jesus performs this miracle. God loves it. When his kids are having a party, he delights in it. It causes him joy. I mean, those of us who've had children and we see when the kids are small and we have a birthday party and it's just, it's just full of laughter and they fall exhausted in bed at night and say, this is the best day of my life. We understand that God loves his kids to celebrate. And next, you have to splurge sometimes without guilt. That's tough for some people. Because you might, you know, say, okay, we'll do this. And then afterwards, oh, I shouldn't have spent that money. Why did I do that? Oh, like, you know, the money could have been better spent here or there or whatever. It could have been given to the poor, all those same things. And, that, and that's true. We're going to see in a minute. But, but we need to, some of us, <laughs> some of us need to learn the other way. But some of us need to learn the joy of freedomly expending resources for a celebration without guilt and without shame, without apology. Because God gives us things at times to celebrate. And the last thing we saw there in this passage is that God says, don't neglect those that can't do it. Don't neglect those that can't afford it. You, you invite in, you care for, you provide for parties and celebrations for those people that don't have the resources to do it for themselves. You make sure that you, you remember. As a matter of fact, there was a kind of a three-year cycle where, where on the third year, this, this tithe went to the poor so that they could carry on and have all of these good things. So the celebration must be all-inclusive of those without the means. So three of those are about Deuteronomy, a few clues. There's one more clue that I think is important, and that is to don't, don't let the party poopers get you down. Uh, to my shame, I do this to Sheena. I'm like, oh, that's a lot of work. Okay. <laughs> 
and it's, it steals the joy. We, we see that a little bit with Jesus, you know, when they're accusing him of being a party animal, and he says, uh, you know, I come eating and drinking, and you just say this. But to me, the biggest example is, is the famous one that, that you probably, if you've been around church much at all, it's, it's King David and that whole deal where he's bringing, bringing the, the ark into Jerusalem. This great, great time of celebration. And it says every, as he came in, every six steps, he sacrificed a, a bull in, in worship and in celebration. Six-step worship, you know. And, and then... When he did that, he said, you know, he, he, was, he was wearing this linen ephod, or this linen gown, and, and he was dancing before the Lord with all his might, some kind of a crazy dance, I don't know what it was. And, and there, it says, you know, they offered up all of these, all of these offerings because they were celebrating because the, the symbol of the presence of God himself was coming into the, into the city and they were celebrating it. And it says that he blessed all of the people uh, in the name of the Lord Almighty and, and in generosity and in celebration he gave them all a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins and, and the whole crowd, both men and women, they went away and this was just an incredible generosity and celebration and he gives all of these things and, and there's this marvelous time where the whole nation is celebrating except one person. And of course he gets home to words of his wife who says, oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and of his servants as any vulgar, undignified, religiously boring person might. And David said, I'm not going to let the party poopers get me down. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and humiliate myself in my own eyes. I will party for the goodness of the presence of the Lord my God. Because God delights when his children have a holy party. Well, I can't go around quoting all of these other people without talking about Tom Wright. So Tom Wright uh, said lots about celebration, but it, I love his comments on celebrating Easter. And this is what he says. We should make Easter a 40-day celebration. We should meet regularly for Easter parties. We should drink champagne at breakfast. We should renew our baptismal vows with splashing water all over the place. And we should sing and dance and blow trumpets and put banners out in the streets. And we should invite the homeless people to parties. And we should go around town doing random acts of generosity and celebration, giving out date cakes, I don't know. We should be doing all these things which would make our sober and serious neighbors say, what is the meaning of this outrageous party? May we be known as the people of the outrageous holy party because we follow the God of outrageous, loving, present 
grace. And he loves it when his kids party.